Welcome to the Permanent Wealth Podcast, where we explore the art of investing and personal finance. My name is Adam Walkham, and during this series, I will be interviewing a number of super smart people where we discuss the biggest issues in both investing and personal finance. Nothing contained within this podcast should be regarded as personal investment advice. The discussions within are for information and entertainment purposes only. If you have any questions on how any of this relates to your personal circumstances, please get in touch with a financial advisor. This episode is brought to you by Permanent Wealth Partners. Permanent Wealth Partners help career professionals such as lawyers, consultants, and bankers achieve a sense of profound financial peace through financial planning. Their clients achieve absolute clarity on their current and future financial positions, structural safety in terms of risk analysis and mitigation, and maximize growth opportunities through portfolio optimization. If any of those sound interesting to you, then get in touch with them at hello at permanentwealth.co.uk. That's hello at permanentwealth.co.uk. And they will see if they're the right fit for you. And now on with the show. Today, I have a very special guest, Jean-Marc Routier, who is in charge of ESG in terms within emerging markets at BlackRock. And actually, Jean-Marc, you might want to clarify that title somewhat, although I might have ruined it a little bit. Long story, Jean-Marc and I used to work together a very long time ago at UBS and our paths have separated. But I felt given Jean-Marc's active participation in the ESG world, and especially given the fact that he works at the biggest fund manager in the world, being BlackRock, ESG is a fascinating area, which I think is only going to get more interesting and it's only going to become more more mainstream. It certainly forms a key part of our investment decision-making set. And so I felt it would be really helpful to, to chat to Jean-Marc today in regards to you know how BlackRock thinks about ESG and what his views and, and perceptions are on it. So Jean-Marc, welcome. Thank you, Adam. And thanks for inviting me to speak to you and your clients. Pleasure. So look, nice to catch up. To start with, do you want to give us a bit of a summary on, you know, BlackRock's sort of stance and thoughts around ESG and almost a little bit of history as well as, as, as where, where it's kind of come from, what journey it's made? Sure. And just to clarify for uh, the benefit of listeners. So you're right, Adam and I have I've worked with each other for many years. I'd like to be able to tell everybody that I remember him with a massive lump of hair. Hey. But no, it's, uh, it hasn't changed a bit in hey. all these years, and it was great to reconnect. Hey. And as, as to my role, it's, it's, just, it's a bit confusing because it is a dual-hatted role. So I look after emerging markets, and I also look after ESG funds within the sort of active equities business at BlackRock. So that's why the, the two sometimes mix, sometimes collide, quite often cross paths. So in terms of BlackRock's commitment to ESG, I think it's fair to say that the firm has uh, been very vocal and you will continue to hear the firm on that. And, you know, every year our founder and still CEO, uh, Larry Fink, writes a, a very open letter to companies we invest in, to the press, talking about his thoughts on specific topic. And the last three letters have been around ESG. And this year, without spoiling it too much, it's coming up next week. It's going to be again on a on the environment, on the E factor, on, on the firm commitment on climate. So it is a big topic at the firm. It's because Larry feels passionately about it, is one aspect. It's also because, you know, when we are entrusted with so much asset, our clients do ask us to have more sustainability into, uh, into what we're offering them. And the last aspect is, I guess, we have hired this chap called Brian Deese, 
who was ex-Obama administration and basically created the, the, the Paris Agreement on Climate and he's recently been called back to office with working with Biden. So he will soon leave BlackRock and go back to uh, a public role in the US. But all this has shaped the, the firm's commitment to do more ESG. And it is something we are doing. It's something the street is doing. And it's something that, you know, if you if you crack this, we'll give you also, of course, a business advantage versus others. And that's why there's a bit of a race right now in terms of who's going to be the, the most sustainable. But I want to really say that it, it runs into the firm's DNA as much as it is also a business imperative. Yeah. And, and when we spoke before, you, you gave me the stat, which I, I nearly fell over, that BlackRock, how many million or trillion now does it manage? Well, we reported last week and, you know, it, it, it came out and it was refreshed. And obviously, no one's failed to notice there's been a nice bull market in equities yeah. this year or 2020. So the, the latest number is $8.2 trillion. Yes. How many zeros is that? It's, it's a lot of zeros. <laughs> it's also, I think, the size of the German uh, GDP. So, yeah, it's, it's but, you know, but the important thing to say is that that's uh, obviously very impressive and completely unimaginable number but it's also not ours it's it's all clients money and yes we manage it on behalf of clients and you mentioned previously that in terms of the you know the, the ESG mandate it applies well obviously BlackRock has a huge ETF business which tracker funds so therefore you just have to replicate what goes on on, on the underlying index but a lot of the ESG decision making actually is just focused on the active management side is that correct well, so you're right that you know a, a good chunk of this 8.2 is actually passive or ETF or indexed money, which we kind of pioneered. And for those who like a bit of financial history, this is the acquisition BlackRock, you know, the New York bond firm made by buying the legacy Barclays BGI business. So this is a UK actually business. It's interesting. Really? Yes, and who pioneered sort of replicate uh, mm. businesses, but. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I work in the active side of the business. I'll yeah. just give you a sense that our business size is about $400 billion. So it's still a, a very good chunk of money, but it's a slightly more on a human scale. And, you know, the, the key difference is that the index guys can only do rules-based approach to ESG, i.e. Uh, you either own coal or you don't own coal. Whilst on active side, we are able to say, well, you don't want to own that type of coal, but we can in this occasion because that's a agent of change in terms of climate transition, for example. And just to give you a sense of the growth in that industry, active funds are declining on average 4% a year. That's the total AUM, the total base, because as we all know, passive is um, such a transparent and practical way of doing it. So you have a natural compression of, of the active side. And the ESG or sustainable funds are growing at close to double digits. It's about 10-ish percent. It's nine point something percent. So it's the type of growth that we're seeing. And that is why, as a business, it's so important to get right. Mm. That's interesting. So even in a declining overall active market, you're still seeing significant growth in the ESG side, which I guess kind of makes sense because the idea of having and you know, choosing an ESG sort of specific fund is, is quite an active decision in terms of, you know, previously from an investor's decision. Now, you know, ironically, I remember ESG, uh, and for those just to clarify, what, you know, 
Can you just sort of describe what E and what S and what G all stands for, just for clarification's sake? Sure, it's it's environment, social, and governance. Yep. And it's fair to say that as active investors, we are most at ease with governance uh, because that's how companies treat their shareholders. So mm-hmm. we're usually very familiar with that. You know, why do you do a rights issue that dilutes me as a minority shareholder? Why? Are you paying your CEO that much money when you know whilst you're making losses? So all this is part of governance. The uh, prominence that that's been uh, sort of rising over the last few years have been around the the E in particular, the environment, mm. and especially around climate. And you know, with the new U.S. administration, you can expect them to reconnect and to realign it to the the Paris agreements. Yeah. And you're going to hear a lot more on that. And and the next bit that's coming, and it's not been completely formalized yet, is the social element. And you've seen this with you know the the the, the racial issue in the in the US in particular, but around the, with the world again, that's going to come back on front of the agenda. Yeah, and it's yeah. I, look, it's it's fascinating. And the area, you know, I remember first looking at ethical funds as they were back in well, probably sort of four or five, no, five or six years ago, when there was a little spate of ethical investments, but the underlying investments tended to be, frankly, a bunch of wind farms and solar farms, and and pretty much it. That was it. There wasn't really that you were quite restrictive in terms of the underlying company and uh, the companies that you owned. And then when you only can own a certain subset of companies, what happened there is the. I mean, the funds outperformed for, I think, six months, but then I think the, the price of oil dropped and therefore those those underlying companies dropped off as well. And so you saw significant underperformance from that particular sector. So as as the way with these things, it tends to go out of focus and out of, out of favour for a little while. But I think what has been the most fascinating thing over the last uh, probably two years or so has just been the almost feels like inexorable rise of ESG, but alongside the kind of passive investing mentality as well. And I think when investors are considering this, you know, we were just discussing before, it's almost now got to a point where it's not just necessarily a, you know, a personal belief angle, because that always has some influence, but it's purely if, you know, I put my capitalist hat on and it's from a liquidity perspective in terms of valuations, in terms of, you know, you mentioned the new Biden administration. And you think about if you were running a coal company in the US, who would you have voted for in the last election, you know, in terms of your potential profits versus the Biden administration now joining, rejoining, sorry, the Paris Agreement, and also with the idea that a a Democrat government generally likes to spend a little bit more in terms of infrastructure spending. You know, you can almost start, it's a bit of a perfect storm going on there at the moment in terms of the way that the, these, the, the companies in this field are, you know, potentially going to benefit from this. Yeah, I, I think you touch on, on two important things here. The first one, I guess, is the evolution of the topic. And again, for those with, you know, long memories, you all remember the SRI funds, the, the, the socially responsible funds, which were the, the pioneers. And you're right, those got, I guess, not quite wiped out, but really suffered a lot from the sort of mining boom Mm. of uh, post-GFC. And the problem with SRI funds at the time is that they were really specific on factors. You really had a specific factor bias. And therefore, when you have a factor tilt, the performance gets effectively obliterated. So I'd say there is an evolution in, I mean, SRI has become ESG, which is now turning into sustainable. And I would view this as a journey. 
And I would view the whole topic as a spectrum. So at the, the, the far end or the low end of the spectrum, you have fairly, again, rule-based, yes or no, sort of very value-based uh, judgment on whether you want to be in this type of investment or not, and you bear the consequences. And then the more sophisticated you get, the more subjectivity you can bring into the debate. You know, we will see the day where a BP will come up with a new way of extracting energy or maybe a new kind of energy. We know this because they are sinking literally billions of dollars into mm. R&D to try to crack this. Similarly, we know in Europe, the biggest polluters being the utilities are also the companies that will be able to effectively do the energy transition. So I think this topic will continue to evolve, but capital needs to be smart to not be caught into arbitrary decisions and to be able to evolve through that spectrum. And also to try to distinguish between two key specifics. There is the do no harm, and, and I use those terms specifically because they are EU regulation coming soon. So again, we're not sure if that's going to apply to UK funds now that Brexit is, has happened, but Europe is regulated on to, you know, how do you define an ESG fund? And so do no harm is one aspect, and then you have do good is another one. And there's, mm -hmm. I think there is a line between those two. And you can see the difference. You can either only invest in wind farms, that's the do good element, or you can invest in a utility, which you know is not the most efficient right now, but it's transitioning towards energy. But what is correct is the second point you raised on is that this is driving flows of capital. Mm. And you're absolutely right that if you're a core company today, and as a firm, we have made a commitment last year to reduce and to not really finance any core exposures anymore. Now, that's difficult to do in practice when you're an index provider because they mm. are part of the index. But I can tell you none of our active funds own coal exposures. Uh, and is because that, that's that is, all um, coal? That's thermal coal, coking coal? Uh, that's only thermal coal. So it's okay. uh, heating coal, yeah, because yeah. obviously coking coal, and, you know, that's used to make steel. Yeah, steel. That's, that's, that's still uh, part of a, a process. So it, it is thermal coal, yeah. and it is all sands and, and, and sort of fringe energy suppliers or wow. energy producers. And that's across so, all your active funds, so over $400 billion yes. worth of active funds. With yes, a, with a, a very and, and strict top-down mandate saying you are yeah. not allowed to invest in this. Correct. Or wow. I mean, we've been uh, now to to be absolutely precise. This is a, a, a decision the firm has taken. But our number one fiduciary duty is to clients. So yep. uh, we've when we had mandates, we've kind of consulted with clients and said, you know, this is what we want to do. Do you agree? When we've had open-ended funds open for retail we've taken the view for them saying, look, we are going to commit to not do that. So yes, you're right. And to the 400 billion of active equity, you have to add fixed income, privates, yeah. multi-assets, etc. So it, it's a lot bigger uh, amount behind it, not financing calls. So, you know, practically speaking, you know, investing in emerging market, what does it mean for India, which yeah. Pakistan, which is even more like Pakistan source of energy is 90% coal, you know, so does that mean their cost of generating electricity goes through the roof? Yes, it will probably because if you're a coal producer in Pakistan, you, you're almost unable uh, to raise capital or you're less able, at least not with BlackRock anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think firms will follow that, uh, that trend. And have you found with that sort of decision-making that there has been, especially, you know, with your role, as you said, your sort of dual-hatted role with an emerging market equities, have you found pushback from either, you know, Pakistani government or companies within India or, you know, have there been sort of, I can imagine some pretty stern words coming back towards you? Remember, a lot of these countries have signed the, the Paris Agreement, so everyone's yeah. committed. And just a reminder, the Paris Agreement is... Uh, 
very interesting one because it, and the terms they used you you'll see back in newspapers i mean the commitment is to have what is called net zero that means we're not going to increase our level of targeted warming of the planet over the next at the time 50 years or also 2050 is the deadline and that means the planet raises in temperature by about 2 degrees and net zero is trying to bring it down to actually zero and and having the same type of of things or trends right now so that is a long term commitment but it's a big commitment and if you do the math it works out to about 7% decrease annually for most corporates most countries in the world it's a big number to try to to get there and so yes of course the governments have have to be honest i'm not sure there's been a letter of complaint from mm-hmm. the Pakistani government. Uh, but I'm sure people have kind of said, well, you know, are you sure you want to do this? But at the same time, the government is also influencing for agreeing to reducing their reliance on fossil fuels. And therefore, it's going more in that direction. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I guess it comes down to that classic discussion between management and the investors. And you know, if, if active investors don't want to make an investment in certain companies, then they don't they don't have to. It's you know that they do it on behalf of their shareholders. And so, just going back in terms of net zero, just for me to understand that for a second, so I can understand. You know, I think you mentioned also previously in previous conversation that BlackRock itself was committed to to achieving or to trying to achieve a net zero output as, as quickly as possible? Well, it's a very difficult thing. And the reason why you haven't seen uh, a net zero commitment from any asset manager is because mm. it's, it's very hard to do in the sense that you're relying on your own investments to themselves commit to a net zero. Right, so yep. if, you, if you, the companies you invest in don't commit to net zero there's nothing you can do as an asset manager you're right it, it's it's about so maintaining that trajectory of temperature warming and you know and i can tell you because i'm on, on the receiving end of that when you have a, a client request in writing saying what are you doing uh, to prevent my portfolios rising by two degrees per year or, or mm. to that deadline it's a really hard question to answer so the answer for us as active investors is to really engage with the corporates and tell them, look, this is what it means. This is the type of data you need to be producing. Mm-hmm. This is the type of CO2 reduction you need to be targeting. And uh, we can help you with with um, the, the, the financial part of that, i.e. understanding the, the consequences of doing that and, and guide you through it. But there's a bit of an arms race again on the corporate side to, you know, disclose as much carbon reduction as you can or to have a trajectory for net zero or net carbon reduction. And in terms of trying to get to net zero, I mean, for my simplistic brain, everyone slash person slash company has a carbon footprint, as in how much carbon we produce by traveling and all that air conditioning and all that sort of stuff. So what is the and a net zero? I imagine obviously there's the gross output and then there's that somehow reduced and offset by something. What What's that something that offsets that? Yeah, so I'll send you a, a nice little blog that explains this quite well. And basically, you're, you're, you're trying to avoid the effect of greenhouse emissions. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the, the normal path that we're on, temperature of the Earth will rise by 2 degrees by 2050. And so what does it take to mitigate that? So, well, you have to reduce uh, the reliance on fossil fuels, reduce your traditional carbon emissions, and you have to increase your carbon removal technologies. 
and those are you know reliance on on solar reliance on uh, wind uh, nuclear is actually um, uh, deemed as a clean energy so you need to do both you need to reduce and you need to increase the clean energy to come up to a, a net zero which is effectively a minus two achievement by 2050 or wow. it's called net zero because there's the point zero is in 2050 Oh, I see. And that's okay. when you you reach you know no increase in temperature since the Paris Accord, which were I believe 2000. And, well, we can calculate that. And yeah, 2000. No, 2010. Great, interesting. And so, all right. So going back to BlackRock for a second. So you've had you're expecting another sort of letter from from Mr. Fink in the next few days. We've seen some really interesting you know shareholder activist slash active shareholder moves into and around this sort of area. And I was thinking we just mentioned before, but I was thinking, you know, look at one of the biggest, most activist hedge funds in London, TCI, where Chris Hone, who is the principal there, has written to all his investee companies, you know, asking a number of questions around their commitment to both the environment but also, you know, governance. What else do you see besides BlackRock or who else do you see besides BlackRock taking a lot of action in this space? At the end of the day, an asset manager is a conduit between an end investor and a company. So, you know, the current trend is that the end investor is asking for change, yep. is asking effectively for returns, but with a sustainable or a, an amount that is uh, sustainable in it. It doesn't mean you need to, again, do good, but definitely, and I think you, you'd agree, and I think as a citizen, you'd want to do no harm at the very least. So that's the pressure point of you know uh, investors saying, well, we're not going to finance this anymore. And it's difficult to implement because it's not like someone says, well, it's very easy. You just need to remove it because everything, as always, is a lot more nuanced decision. So uh, therefore, uh, the action needs to come from companies. And this is where we're seeing the most evolution in terms of companies making a commitment to be more sustainable, to be more, you know, ESNG aware. And that's a whole array of things. I mean, just to give you a sense, there are 400 single indicator you can calculate on ES or G, you know, is the board diverse? Uh, How many independent directors? How many... Yeah, 400, that's the amount of uh, data points that we can download to calculate the score, an ESG score of a company. So the pressure points are around the companies to disclose better data so that we can understand better their commitment to ESG. We can grade them better, and then we can deliver a portfolio to clients that is more sustainable, Mm. as well as generative of returns. Uh, That's fascinating, and I think it shows you know, the kind of the classic capitalist mentality of the market doing, well, the market doing good in a way because that's what people expect and that's what the underlying investors want. And it's actually where you said it's driven by the companies. The companies are not necessarily doing this uh, from what, what you mentioned because of a government has stepped in and said, you must do this. The companies are doing it by themselves. And because they can see the flows happening in front of their very eye. I mean, yeah. I can give you a very concrete example Example of an Indian bank that approached us saying, look, we don't understand. We're receiving all these letters from investors. And we are seeing our shareholding is shrinking in terms of foreign ownership of, of, our, of our bank. And uh, we don't understand why. And uh, we helped them uh, dig through the issues and it turns out, the ESG rating agencies were giving them a really bad rating for 
primal plantation financing. Yeah. And we told them, look, it's because uh, you're not telling them the right information because, you know, Palmol is a fact of life. There are very good Palmol companies and mm. you have very bad Palmol companies. And now any bank that is listed would tend to have certain requirements for lending to Palmol plantations. And therefore, you know, this bank in particular was not disclosing certain information to the rating agencies and therefore the rating agencies assumed that they were, their lending practices wasn't in check. So, you know, this generally drives capital mm. flow. And uh, corporates are getting up to speed quickly because they can see that capital moving in front of their eyes. Yep. And you mentioned something before about Apple just making a change you saw? Yeah, I mean, I was just, I was just browsing through the news at lunchtime and I saw that Apple CEO is adding a new KPI on his page saying, you know, he's going to be judged on his delivery of ESG factors as well yeah. as attaining certain revenue and profitability targets. To your earlier point, Adam, I think you're right. This is not a, a cycle. It, it, it is a trend. Yeah, it's not a fad, exactly. It's uh, something that's here to stay and that's going to drive a lot of the, uh, the asset allocation. Now, having said that, this year, 2020, has been particularly good for ESG factors. Mm. And so it's been exacerbated by the fact that pretty much every ESG trend has also been sourced of alpha. And as you correctly remember, when there's an oil cycle or when there's a, a mining cycle, we're actually going through a bit of basic material uplift at the moment. Mm. This will get tested. And I think it's here to stay. I think we'll need more structurally fundamental sustainable measures and outputs, but you know, capital and return will prevail eventually, and you'll see a bit less, uh, a bit less of the trend. But for now, we're in the eye of the storm, and there's a, it's more and more, uh, and it's not going to inflict uh, yeah. very shortly. I think. And do you think, with the work that BlackRock does, I mean, where I, I guess, in a way, from from an asset manager perspective. You kind of, to, to quote a, a wang, you know, an ice hockey quote, you skate to where the puck's going to be. And in terms of, let's say, from an index side and a passive side, I've seen recently both Vanguard and Legal and General have both launched kind of ESG indices. Is this something that you see happening more? Is this something BlackRock's looking at in their passive side? Or? Yeah, I mean, it, it's already happened. I, we have a whole suite and range of ESG funds, mm. uh, passive funds at BlackRock. Again, they're very rule-based because that's the only way you can do it. Yeah. So, you know, it's about threshold of coal, threshold oil and gas. Do you want uh, tobacco in there? There's this popular measure called the uh, UN Global Compact Violators, which is mm -hmm. a list established by the UN of uh, companies that have been involved in corruption. So there's all this list of companies that you can uh, exclude. So it's happening. I think the, the next order... So the puck's already uh, there. Um, <laughs> where the puck is going is a lot more climate. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know we're working on the whole climate solution for clients. I They want, uh, and this net zero and all, all these topics are going to dominate the creation of new products. And yep. the next move will be on social. That's in its infancy. Mm. How do you make, you know, investments that are very uh, social in, uh, yep. in, in nature? Yeah. 
And, and what's interesting about those two is the fact it doesn't just encapsulate, you know, the certain subject, like, for example, carbon producing companies or, or, or other. It encapsulates basically every company in terms of their management practices, in terms of their diversity, you know, inclusion biases, all of that thing. Whether you're a tech company, an oil company, a bank, a retailer, it doesn't matter. You still fall under these and you still can be judged on these metrics. So that's where it's really interesting. And I, I, I'm thinking about sort of certain funds and certain, you know, ESG funds specifically, which will have maybe one or two of the tech companies, but by, you know, what is interesting is what they don't own, and that's they don't own a couple of other tech companies. And I think back to where you mentioned the do no harm, and I think wasn't that one of Google's original, one of Facebook or Google's original mottos? That I know it was Google, I think, it was do no evil. And ironically, then Google does not appear on some of these fund holdings. Now, there might be other certain reasons for that. Who knows? There's a lot to say about the topic and about how ESG is calculated or mm. estimated because it's a very subjective uh, opinion. You know, yeah. uh, like LVMH is a really fantastic company. But it's got a really undiverse board because it's Bernardo and his friends running the company. Now, does that make it a bad investment? Does that make it a ESG sort of companies that you have to, to put aside because of bad ESG metrics? Yeah. Everything is very open for debate. Mm-hmm. And you know, you you touch on the on the tech giants. Well, you know, you, we all know that those tech giants usage of our data and, and how uh, they are able to influence our lives, you know, is that an ESG factor? So I think there is, as always, a norm that is forming. What we are witnessing right now is is really the birth of, of a, a sub-industry of how can we can call things sustainable, you know, who decides what is sustainable, what, what isn't. Like everything, like, you know, is Tesla a good investment today? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's debatable. We have a view on it. But, you know, we're fundamental investors and you probably guessed what our, what our view is. But, you know, the market is giving you another view yeah. and uh, the market's always right at the end of the day. So you've got to, to make a judgment call. And I think what we happen, what's happening right now is everything's been written. You know, how we define ESG, how we interpret ESG data and how do we make decisions on the back of it. It's still very much up in the air and there isn't a right or wrong answer and everyone's trying to figure it out. And I think the analogy that we've been using last year a lot, and I think it's very relevant, is it's a bit like flying a plane and building it at the same time. You know, you're in the air, you're going at 400 miles an hour, Mm. and uh, you realize that your left wing is not quite complete because, you know, (laughs) this new angle on net zero is coming, and you're like, well, what, you know, exactly to your point, like, has anyone worked out what that even means? Yeah. And so I think the whole industry is trying to answer those questions. And we're no different. The slight advantage we have is we have the scale and the technology to be able to do things maybe a bit quicker than our competitors. But when it comes to making a rational decision on whether you invest in X or Y, you know, you do ask yourself the, 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 the same questions. And all this is a continuum and uh, an evolution that will keep shaping our investment world. Mm, no, that's interesting. And I think the one extra string to the bow of BlackRock that it has is that you, that you didn't mention there was just the clout and the size to actually make those decisions um, or once you make those decisions to actually for the, the underlying companies themselves to stand up and take notice. Because when you have a, you know, let, let's say when you have a top-down 
you know, message that goes across all the active funds held within BlackRock, and then potentially that extends onto all the kind of some of the passive funds, and you create your own ESG-friendly indices and things like that. That drives, in the end, because ultimately, as the investors subscribe with their pounds and with their dollars and with their yen. And whatever's, as we all know in this industry, wherever that money goes, whatever that investor puts that money, those things become the biggest emphasis of what the asset managers look for. And so, you know, having the clout and the size of BlackRock to have those discussions with the companies, and I've, I've found that Indonesian banking example a fascinating example, because it's 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 an underlying, it's a corporate coming to you saying, what do we do about this? You guys seem to know what you're doing. How do we help? You know, how can we improve? And hopefully, I think those conversations are going to be happening everywhere. Absolutely. And I'd say 2020, I mean, the topic has evolved so much in the last three years. You know, we, we created a little group to try to solve all these questions back in sort of 17, 18. And they had at the back end of 17. And in three years, we've moved from how do we do this? Do we have the tools to calculate this and that to now building really complex systems to calculate climate impact of portfolios and all these various things. So it's definitely accelerated a lot in the last couple of years, and it's probably going to continue on that, on that trend for now. Excellent. And just one final question before we kind of wrap up. You used BP as, a, as an interesting example, and it's, it's when you kind of talked about it's not necessarily doing good, but doing no harm. And so from, from the sound that you mentioned or from what I took away from that would be if someone like BP who, I mean, remember, I mean, I think BP was beyond petroleum. I mean, that was they, they started that in the early 2000s, if I remember rightly. So ironically, they kind of saw this on the wall before anyone, but still are an enormous oil producer. But as you said, are trying to do, you know, investing billions and billions into trying to find whatever is next, i.e. beyond petroleum. Does that mean within BlackRock as an active participant, you view that differently than, say, the rules-based would be? Because rules-based would say, okay, you are an oil producer, have certain you know, things like that, then X will put you in that box. Versus you're active, you, you are able to take a more nuanced view of, of, the, of BP and what they're doing? Yeah, and, and you have to. I mean, the, the live example, I mean, BP, I'm not exactly sure where they are on their R&D, to be honest. But if you take, you know, the latest craze, because we picked on Tesla, you know, if you take the, the traditional auto manufacturers, are they behind, lagging, catching up? Again, up for debate. Yeah. But, you know, wh what are they doing? And, and you know, which ones are better placed than others? I don't know if you saw, but Apple is talking about the Apple car now. Mm. And it's Hyundai in, in Korea. Uh, has been a potential partner for Apple to help them crack the Apple car. The, the share price rallied 25% overnight on that headline. Uh, now, we, we have no idea, what, you know, is this, a, is this a firm order? Is this a firm agreement? Is this, you know, what's been happening? But the point is, you need to be very flexible to understand how the capital will move and yeah. how it will shape different industries. Because you can't just say, well, the, car, the, the old car industry is just dead. You know, it's dead until it manages to reinvent itself. And that's what good businesses do. Mm. So the way we've defined this is, again, and this is the difference between do no harm and do good. Mm. So do good is there is a clear intent to, to help the planet. And sometimes it's, it's, you want it, uh, there's, there's a willingness to do it. Sometimes it just happens that it's the business you're in. So if you're a wind turbine manufacturer, 
whether you like it or not, you're helping the world creating more sustainable electricity. And let's say, do good company. Now, uh, do, no, do no harm, the way we've defined it uh, at BlackRock is trying to find what we call sustainable business models. And what that means, uh, it's companies that are good corporate citizens that look after their ecosystems, mm-hmm. which comprises not only your clients, but also your suppliers, your staff. And we've got some really cool data to measure that. I mean, you know, I don't know if you heard of Glassdoor, which is, you know, when you go and join a company, you look on the Glassdoor with happiness right. level, and it's a completely yeah. voluntary uh, way for, for employees to say, well, I'm really happy with my employer or not. And, you know, we, we buy this data and we can, we can put it in our models and say, well, you know, the happiness factor of employees in company X is here versus the rest of the industry. So these are good data that we can use. And that's what we mean when we talk about sustainable business model, you know, businesses that can withhold the test of time and uh, return sustainable type profitability for, for investors and can look after their entire uh, environment. And that is a very subjective decision. And sometimes you get it wrong because, you know, you've not seen that one factor that no one knew existed within the company. And Mm -hmm. and so you've got to live with that and you've got to make your decisions the best with your best of your ability. And but yeah, absolutely. Active investing allows you to make that nuance and to have sort of expert knowledge of of a subject and make those decisions. Mm. Fascinating. Well, look, Jean-Marc, I'm going to leave it there. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. I think that was fascinating. And I hope everyone enjoyed that. Just for a disclaimer, I use and recommend BlackRock funds. Nothing that we've discussed today is financial advice. So if you've got any questions or want to know how this relates to your portfolios, please get in touch and then we can talk about it and we can do the personalized advice there. But so look, Jean-Marc, nice to catch up again, mate. Look, thank you. That has been really, really interesting. And I wish you all the best on your continued ESG journey, of which sounds like you're just going to be getting busier and busier. (laughs) Thank you very much, Adam. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you today. 